Love it. Well, who's enjoying reading the book of John? I'm having an absolute blast reading this book and uh, it's been great to be preaching out of it since the beginning of the year or since uh, our Vision Sunday in February. And Today we're in chapter 18, um, which is where Jesus is arrested. And uh, this story is um, incredibly layered with hidden, but not hidden so we can't find it, but depth, uh, meaning in a lots of what Paul, uh, sorry, Paul, what John presents. John's a very, very, very clever, inspired by the Holy Spirit, no doubt, but a very clever narrative writer. And he's got details in his account of what happens with Jesus for reasons that can become clear. And we're going to look at some of them this morning. So we're going to start first off by looking at John chapter 18, verses 1 through 9. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley on the other side. Say, on the other side. Recognise that phrase? Don't you do? Bible, Jesus walking on water. The guys were crossing over to the other side. Jesus walked on water to cross over to the other side. Well, on this occasion, he's walking across the Kidron Valley. Mason, can you put that picture up that I sent, please? So we can have a look at it. Uh, is that is that what I sent you? <laughs> really? Ah, oh, okay. Well, that's the Kidron Valley looking the wrong way. Um, <laughs> as you can see, it is a valley. Oh, that's a pill. I sent you the wrong one after all that. I thought I'd done well. I was doing something else at the time, obviously. It's like <clears throat> the Kidron Valley is just outside of the temple precinct in Jerusalem. And on the other side, if you're looking the other way from that photograph, you goose Bruce, um, you'd, be, you'd be looking up the valley. And on the right-hand side of the picture I thought I'd sent is the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on the other side of the valley. Something that I um, read during the week that I've never actually noticed before was the Kidron Valley is uh, what they call a, a, a wadi. So it's a bit like our creek at the front. It flows when it rains and it doesn't when it's not and so it's a dry creek most of the time. But some scholars are of the view that all of the blood effluent from the temple, and we're talking about a slaughterhouse where literally tens of thousands of animals were sacrificed per week. This is the Passover we're talking about, about to be. In fact, when they crossed over this, the Passover day had started because the sun goes down on a Thursday night when the sun sets that's the beginning of Passover until sunset Friday night and so Jesus is crossing over the blood animal sacrifice blood he's walking over from the temple crossing over animal blood literally to a garden this detail is all in here because it means something to John. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Isn't it interesting that Jesus established a sacred place of prayer in, not his lounge room, not on a roof, not in a cave, in a garden? Why? Why a garden? Well, it's significant, I believe, to John because that's where all the trouble for human beings started, in a garden, the Garden of Eden. And John's going to great lengths to contrast Jesus in the garden with Adam and Eve in the garden. 
and what he achieved for us in that garden. And we'll read on and unpack some of that stuff. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers. Depending on what you believe and what um, historians would say about that, some believe a detachment, a Roman detachment, was 600 people. That's a fairly serious detachment of soldiers. Others say, no, and the language in the Greek text alludes to maybe only 200. Just 200 guys, soldiers, rock up to arrest one guy who hasn't lifted his finger to hurt anybody ever. And they rock up in a garden to take into custody the light of the world. They turn up in darkness carrying torches and lanterns. See the contrast that John is writing here is they, if they only knew who they were actually approaching to arrest, they could have almost not taken any light in there because he is light. Who knows what it was like literally in Jesus' presence. If he's the light of the world, is it only figuratively? Is it only spiritually? Is it possible that wherever he went, sometimes it was actually not dark because he is light? I don't know. But they turned up with torches. Uh, they had their um, Duracell batteries, I hope, at work there. So they rocked up to the garden and uh, they were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he. Oh, there it is. You kind of go, could have said, that's me. You found him. But he actually makes a statement right there, I'm God. I am he. He's making a very, very strong statement about who he is. Um, in, in fact, as he said that, um, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. The mention of his name causes 200 soldiers to collapse. Like, that's a fairly serious word picture. We're not dealing with a little pussycat God who's a fluffy thing. We're talking about the great I am. The Yahweh of the Old Testament, these idiots turned up to arrest the Son of God, not knowing who they were dealing with. Do you know who you're dealing with when you start messing with God? Just how, as Shane emphasised, just how sacred and holy he is. How revered, as the word Shane used, he is to be. We don't just approach him casually. The old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, is a lovely word picture about Jesus' um, relationability with us and his embrace of us. But don't let that fool you into being irreverent because he is holy, he's the son of God and he is to be feared in a positive sense of the word, amen? amen? And so he asked them again, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And Jesus said, I told you that, I am he. And if you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. So this message has got four parts. I love the fact, I'm absolutely gobsmacked that God put some ideas into my head earlier before this year started about the, uh, using an acrostic for the word sent. And the more I've preached messages around this through this year, the more I'm going, God, you're just awesome because it's helped me to get my head around what's important. So this is a four-part message around surrender. 
entering his presence, navigating obstacles and difficulties and understanding God's timing in your life is perfect. Like God's timing is perfect. It's like, well, has God missed it? Have I missed it? It's like, no, God's timing is perfect in every theatre of our lives. So here we go, surrender. John always includes detail that has deeper meaning than the one that we see at first glance. I've already mentioned, so this is happening in the garden. Jesus is in the garden in complete control of his future. Whilst he's in the garden, the Passover lambs in Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley are being slaughtered. They get slaughtered at sunset on the Passover. Today is Palm Sunday. We celebrate Palm Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem as their king. The beauty about Palm Sunday from the point of view of this story is the Old Testament rule was that on the 10th day of Nisan, the month of Nisan, the Passover lamb was to be selected. Palm Sunday is the day of the lamb selection. The lamb has to be selected from either the goats or the sheep, didn't matter which, as this case is a sheep. And then the lamb has to be inspected for four days. So you pull this little lamb out of your flock and it's not allowed to have a blemish, not allowed to have any defect whatsoever. And to ensure that it's perfect for the occasion, the person who's in charge of this particular, like a family's Passover celebration has to spend four days inspecting the lamb. So we get through to the Passover evening and we see something strange starting to go on here. It's a Passover lamb. Jesus has been selected by a whole lot of hoo-ha. And I would imagine in a family that was going to actually sacrifice a, a lamb lamb, would have been on the day of selection pretty thankful to God, A, that they had a lamb, and B, they could pick one out of their own flock that was actually without a blemish, there'd be a lot of celebration. So the celebration of Jesus coming into Jerusalem represents a whole bunch of things, as well as his kingship. Um, I've shared all those ideas already off the top of my head. Goodness me, Bruce, get out of the notes. One thing I read, though, was that John's making a particular point here with Je Jesus is in this garden confident. He's not, oh, is this is the end. Oh, this is going to be tough. He's actually standing in the face of the threat of death and staring it down and says, well, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth? On your man. Bring it on. But let these dudes go. These, got these friends of mine, let them go. You don't want them, you want me. He's very confident of his, his position and who he is. As opposed, and the, as the story goes on, we find that Jesus' confidence is contrasted with Peter's lack of confidence, Peter's intimidation. So my first question out of all that is, so Jesus didn't fight. He didn't call down a squadron of angels from heaven to fry these guys. He could have. He could have just dispatched them to the pits of hell. At, at his word, they could have just said, drop dead, and they would have. That's the way he rolled. When he cursed that fig tree, it dropped dead. So I don't think any harder for him to curse a person. That's not his style. So he willingly let them take him. 
As I reflected on this part of the story, I wondered how often I had decided to fight when I was supposed to surrender. How many times have I gone into activist mode when the outcome would have been achieved a lot easier if I just submitted to God, just laid it down? I've reflected on a, what I've mentioned from the pulpit before, a truism that's been spoken, and I can't remember who was the first person to pipe up with it, but it goes along these lines, that evil triumphs when good men do nothing. Heard that? Only problem is that it's not true. It's true-ish, and sometimes it apply, applies. My view is evil triumphs when Christ followers stop praying. Prayer is the key to overcoming evil, not guns, bullets, cricket bats, baseball bats, marching in the streets, protesting. I personally don't get overly excited about activism, full stop, because I don't see Jesus ever being an activist. Jesus was a person who surrendered. He surrendered to evil. Well, what's that going to turn out like? Well, it turns out really well if you trust God. Some people might say you're a little naive, you've never been to war. What happened in the world wars? You know, people thought like that and their kids got killed and sent home in body bags. And I kind of get those arguments and I understand the pain in those sorts of comments and feedback. But that's a bit like suggesting that if we pray for people to get healed and they don't, we stop asking God to heal people. It's like we don't stop doing that because we just never know what God's up to. So my question stands as an area of surrender. Can you think of a time when you look back and think, I was actually supposed to lay that down. I was supposed to stop fighting and trust God, and I didn't. Am I good at surrendering to God's will? Is my summary of that first question. Reading right on. So we can keep going. Um, Verses 15 through 18. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the priest's courtyard. But listen to this, verse 16, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. Go, "Uh uh-oh. Can you say, "Uh Uh uh-oh. So we're reading a story, and you've got to have this little moment of going, "Uh uh-oh. Say it again, "Uh uh-oh. This is Peter's tripping point. Waiting outside the door. You go, okay, so the story's just told. The only reason he's waiting outside because the other dude know, knew somebody with inside knowledge, he just got left out. The problem with being left out is he got literally for the first time in, depending on what you understand the timeline, maybe three years. First time in three years, he's gotten a few more than a few steps away from you know who. Jesus. When he's in Jesus' company, he's confident. He tries to cut some dude's ear off in the garden because he's so indignant that Jesus is being arrested. He's confident, taking action, decisive, wrongly motivated in some respects. Certainly his actions aren't the right one. Jesus says, what are you doing? Put that away. But all of that boldness Is it possible it's because he was in proximity with Jesus? Starts to get by circumstance, say circumstance, Circumstance. 
has some circumstance that you have had no control in shifted you, shuffled you away, just pushed you a few steps away from Jesus? To the point where he flips from being bold and indignant in the course of this story to denying that he even knew Jesus. Like, that's a fairly serious transition from, I was there, I got the sword out, I was happy to die fighting. And Jesus said, we're not going down that path, but he put the sword away. This is about a surrender moment. Don't you love it when Jesus tells you off? So put your swords away, Bruce. It's no time for fighting. Just sit down and shut up. Oh, but, 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 but. Evil triumphs when good men do nothing. No, sit down and shut up. Because I've got a plan. It's just like, this is, I hope this is messing with you a little bit, because it ought to be. God's got a way of doing things that's not always clear to us. So he goes on, the other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty and brought Peter in. Oh, there you go, you got let in the door. Um, you aren't one of the man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter, he said, I am not. It was cold, say cold. Why does he put that in there? Other than this, and the servants and the officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. In OV is going to be unpacked here in a minute. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. So entering into his presence is my second point. Being in Jesus' presence is the key to survival. No matter what's going on in your life, don't let circumstance of life push you away. I've watched so many people get pushed out of church. They just stop coming every week. It's like, is it important? And it's not the only be all and end all, but it's like, it's, to me, it's a little bit of a litmus test. It's like, well, how's your prayer life going? Oh, yeah. How's your Bible reading going? I remember I've asked over the years to show of hands, and you don't have to do that this morning. Who's up to date with the Bible reading plan at the moment? It's like, it's like, it's not a question of judgment or criticism. It's actually a litmus test for me of we either have a problem or we don't have a problem. Because we're all needing to be in his presence, right? I don't know how you get into his presence, but one way I do is to read the Bible. One way I get into his presence is to hang out with you guys. And I like doing that. I love coming to church. I love our worship team. I love hanging out and chit-chatting over the um, 60 seconds to mingle. How much fun is that? And then having a coffee afterwards, we get to hang out and talk again. And then today, we get to hang out over lunch and play in a jumpy castle. Oh, I can't wait, Shane. I reckon I might get a face paint job. I'm going to have to ask my grandkids for a little bit of advice about what that might look like with a fuzzy old beard on. I might end up looking like something from The Lion King. You never know, right? So I've already asked the question, what circumstances have moved me away from Jesus? Away from his presence, life. Listen to this from that comment about cold. Away from his presence, life will grow dark and cold. What does that mean? I'm not talking about the atmosphere in your house necessarily. I'm talking about in here. My heart starts to get dark. can end up becoming, starting to be a cynical person a critical person, a judgmental person, and just cold and unmoved by other people's pain or suffering. That, that, that's, when I've got Jesus glowing on the inside, your pain's my pain. Your burdens are my burdens. The further I get away from him, 
I don't give a stuff what happens to you. It's like I just become self-absorbed. That's how animals live. God puts compassion and empathy and all sorts of other beautiful parts of humanness that are meant to be in us in, us, in spades when we're next to Jesus. So enter his presence. And then, this is an interesting little bit of information, the fire in the NIV is just referred to as a fire, but the Greek word used there is anthrax. And anthrax, the bacterial infection that people can get that's pretty deadly is called anthrax because of the black sores that form on the skin that look like coal. And anthrax in the Greek means coal. And so they're burning coal. And John is very specific, so he uses that term only here. And in Peter's restoration in chapter 21, it says there's a coal fire burning on the beach with fish on it. You go, why is it so? Some of the older people here remember that TV advert, right? Professor Julius Sumner Miller and his little science experiments adverts. Why is it so? So why is it so? It's like amazing, isn't it? Am I peaking any kind of... Ooh, curiosity here, right? Why is it a coal fire? And this little idea popped into my head. When we get away from Jesus, we will end up burning what we are made of to stay warm. Because coal essentially is burning dirt, right? It's actually dirt out of the ground called coal. In some parts of the world, like Scotland and Shetland, they have peat, which is not quite turned into coal yet, but it's the same. You dig it out of the ground and you set fire to it and it burns. And in Genesis chapter 2, God specifically is revealed as creating Adam out of the dirt, the dust of the earth, and breathing life into him. So... If you wonder how do you get burned out in life? How do you end up emotionally drawn down to nothing? How do you end up struggling through life with distress, anxiety, stress, anxiety and depression? Sometimes, not always, we start burning what we're made of. Running, as I think Greg Fredge talked about it when he was here, and just remind us of this, the wick burning or the oil on the wick burning. Was that Pastor Phil in... What I mean, Pastor Phil, in the, in the spirit, of course. Either way, I just got excited, a coal fire. Am I burning myself up, trying to keep up appearances? Am I trying to convince people that I'm okay, it's good, yeah, no worries, and I'm working really hard behind the scenes in my own strength to get there? When the answer to the, to the truthful answer to that state of mind is, I got Jesus. I'm good. Someone asked me this morning how I'm going, and I actually got to church this morning. I think, man, I am feeling awesome. And I can't really put my finger on why, other than the fact that I think Jesus is close. It's like, how do you have a good day? Get into him. Stop having a pity party. Stop digging up your coal mine and throwing coals in the fire out of your own soul. Get some oil from heaven into you. Okay, so this is all in the story. Enter his presence. All righty. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly the word, blah, 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 blah. He has lots to say to them. Why question me? 
ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. He's basically pushing back a little bit on this ridiculous question and why they've got him in the dead of night. What's going on, basically he's saying. And so in that respect, he is pushing back a little bit. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Peter continues to be distant. We'll get to this in a moment, what this is all about. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing around warming himself, warming himself. Say, warming himself. What do you do to warm yourself? When you're feeling glum. Some people get stuck into the alcohol. Some people get into drugs, whether they're illegal or legal, but they medicate somehow or other to warm themselves. It's like they're poor substitutes for the real deal. Some people take and get into risky behaviour when they're worn out. When you're not sleeping properly, you start making poor choices, start watching things that probably don't do your soul any good. You start having conversations that don't bring life to you or to other people. That's all symptomatic of ways we try to warm ourselves. Solution, push into Jesus. Solution, repent. Say, God, you got me. I'm being a complete idiot. Fill me again with the joy of your salvation. Fill me afresh with the oil of heaven. That's a good day to have a conversation with Jesus. So Peter denies Jesus three times and then the rooster crowed and he realised, uh-oh, what he said's come true. All of that is circumstantial in my view to some extent of his remoteness at that point in time with Jesus in the story. So navigating criticism, however, the part where Jesus is interrogated here, Criticism and false testimony is contrasted here between Jesus and Peter. Jesus is confident and not intimidated by the questions at all. Whereas Peter, he's intimidated by what's referred to as a servant girl standing by the fire. One of his disciples? No, not me, mate. Whew, no, no you, got to, you must be mistaken. But you're a Nazarene. No, 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 no. no you got him. I don't know him. Whereas he's getting questioned by the powers that be, right in his face. Interesting little side of issue here is Jesus gets slapped. And I've thought about that. How, how? I pondered the Passover lamb is not allowed to have a blemish on it. And Jesus gets belted by this official. I'd say he probably had a big red welt on the side of his cheek. Maybe a bruise already on there. That's a big no-no for the Passover lamb. So I'm thinking, why is John adding in that part of the story, like it's, it makes sense as part of the narrative, but it's in there for more than just the narrative purpose is what I'm trying to say. And I reckon at that point in time, we're supposed to understand that slap right there was the beginning of Jesus' death. It wasn't the nail, it was the slap. That was the beginning of his execution. His, his number was up. As soon as that hand hit his face, he knew it was game over. And he was happy about that because he knew what he had to do besides that. Because when you think about it, and if you've watched uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion, um, Jesus in that is depicted as fairly brutally tortured and, and mercilessly ravaged by um, 
what you call ancient modes of torture and uh, yeah, anyway, it's pretty horrible when you go, but he, he couldn't, that's not a blemishless lamb, right? So uh, that's the kind of thinking I, that the Bible's not intimidated by you getting into it with a big question like that. And so I've pushed back from that myself a little and think, well, when you think about it, he actually crossed the threshold of the day of the beginning, the day of Passover, crossed the valley, blemishless, into the garden, representing where it all started. Then he gets arrested. He surrendered. Eve caved. Evil turned up in the Garden of Eden and deceived Eve and Adam. Evil turned up into the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus said, I surrender. Let's just keep the sentence going. I surrender to the will of God. I'm not going to do what you're suggesting. They think that arresting him means they're in charge. He knows that them arresting him means he's in charge. You're getting into trouble. You're having a bad day. Might appear to be a bad day. But what if it's the day of God's breakthrough? What if you're sitting with your back to the wall this morning in some circumstance and you're thinking, I think I'm done. Whatever that might be, when God's kind of cheering from heaven, no, you've only just started, mate. Get ready. The next chapter's opening up. Get ready. The next thing's about to happen. Get excited. I'm in charge, not the devil. Right? Anyone happy about that? Is this helping somebody? Oh, I've gone way too long. All right. Was that a yes from Julie? As you can see, I got excited about this message. Okay, navigating problems. We're moving right along. So how am I when the pressure's on, confident of God's promises and not intimidated, or am I like Peter with no confidence and intimidated? I think I've already mentioned that. We're going to finish up with two minutes. The timing of God is impeccable. Oh, Yes. God's timing is impeccable. The irony of the part of the story, which I better quickly read, where he's been interrogated by Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate responds with this incredible, what is truth? A lot of people want to have that question answered. Only problem is the wrong question. Because truth isn't a what, it's a who. If you want the truth, you've got to go to the truth. Jesus in John 14 says, I am the way, the truth and the life. So it's ironic that Pilate's sitting there, standing there, whatever, controlling the situation and spurts out what is truth when truth's staring him in the face. I don't know, I just go, that's weird. God is good. All right, it's clearly possible to be academically right, theologically correct, but still lack integrity in life. Jesus' mission was to integrate truth into life. Why don't we stand to our feet? So I've truncated this a bit because I've got a bit carried away. But it's okay, isn't it? Yes. Did anyone get bored in that message? Just give me a little wave and say, well. or speak to me afterwards if you don't want to wave. It's all right. I did learn somewhere, I think at uni or somewhere, that a long sermon is only, only a long sermon if you're a lousy preacher. So just keep that in mind, pulpit training group. 
Was that encouragement from you, Julie? Okay, keep it moving, honey. Okay. Father, we just give you thanks this morning that as we surrender when we don't think we should, as we make it our business to enter into your presence, when circumstances are pushed us aside, Lord, when we're intimidated by our circumstance and we don't navigate and push back like Jesus did with confidence, and Lord, when our sense of timing is out of line with you, I pray right now that by your Spirit you'd gather all of those thoughts together and help us to understand you've sent us on a mission that sometimes is never going to make sense but is always going to bring about an extension of your kingdom. Jesus went to the cross so that we might know you. And Lord, you send us on a life mission so that others could hear about Jesus, so that others can see how the kingdom works, so others can understand what love truly is. And so we pray, Lord, you'd wash over us all as we come to a close this morning. In Jesus' wonderful name, we thank you today, Lord. It just sense to focus down on that first point as a response in our hearts this morning. If you know you've been fighting because you felt that was the right thing to be doing, fighting an issue, fighting about a particular, I don't mean fighting with someone else necessarily, but just on the inside, you know you've been struggling and labouring a point. I really sense this message is a key for you this morning to surrender. Surrender to God right now. Let's lay it down and let him prove his love for you in your surrender. And so, Father, we come to a close this morning, confident that your goodness will continue to be revealed to us. Lord, for anyone who's never invited Christ into their life, Lord, for anyone who's never had that conversation of entering into your presence and saying, Lord, I want to surrender my life whether online or here in the meeting this morning. God, I pray right now you just poke that person's heart with a little nudge and say, come on, it's the time to lay it down. And that indeed we would. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. If you're online listening and you do want to talk about giving your life to Jesus, please send us an email and it'll click on the link on the website. If you're here this morning, something I've said poked you, literally and you need to talk about giving your life to Jesus, I'm going to be down the front here for five minutes. I'd love you to come. If you've got any other prayer needs, we've got people here in our church that would love to pray with you. We can pray for healing, breakthrough, whatever you might need. So God bless. We're going to stay standing. We're going to sing a song. And then we're going to have...